What did we do on our computers before Google? And computers themselves, what did they do before Microsoft invented the software that allowed them into our homes? Well, Google's only been around for a little over 20 years, and personal computers have only been widely available for 30. But how very hard it is to remember life before them. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, remembers, though, because a lot of people thought he was nuts for imagining a future where regular folks would own their own computers. It's very hard to recall how crazy and wild that was. You know, on every desk and in every home, you know, at the time you have people who are very smart saying, you know, why would somebody need a computer? Even Ken Olson, who had run this company, Digital Equipment, who made the computer I grew up with, and, you know, that we admired both him and his company immensely, was saying that this seemed kind of a, a silly idea that people would want to have a computer. Sergey Brin remembers, too, because just a few years before he and Larry Page created Google, there wasn't that much available online to search through, even if you did have a personal computer. When I uh, came to Stanford for grad school, it was really the birth of the World Wide Web, uh, which also didn't exist prior to that, about 93. Uh, and there was actually, you know, when you would start your browser, you would be on a page that was what's new, and that would list every new web page. I know that sounds funny, but it was literally the what's new page, and like if, you know, whatever Riverdale Elementary School put their fish tank on the web <laughs> that month, that would be the thing that everybody would look at. Um, I don't know, yeah, I, no, it sounds like a joke. No, it's really true. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess there weren't that many people looking at the web back then because there wasn't much to see. You'd have to just check back every month and see what the new web page was. Uh, but we do, we do uh, you know, all of us today, we kind of take it for granted that we can get information on pretty much anything, anytime. On this episode, the tech titans who delivered a revolution to our doors, Microsoft founder and philanthropist extraordinaire Bill Gates and Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance that would not be possible without personal computing and lots of Googling from the Academy of Achievement. I'm your host, Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. I want to start here in the present and work backwards. In December of 2019, just a month ago as I record this episode, 
Larry Page and Sergey Brin made a big newsworthy announcement. They would no longer lead the company they created when they were grad students at Stanford. But you know what else they did when they were grad students at Stanford? Well, dropouts from grad school. They came to an Academy of Achievement Summit. This was in 2000, and they talked about their new venture. My hope is to provide instant access uh, to any information anybody ever wants uh, in the future. Check. Bryn also talked about the challenges he and his partner Larry Page were facing at that young moment. I think um, some of the biggest challenges, I mean, aside from what you would expect, you know, uh, well, I'll list several. One is playing a service that's going to serve millions of people. When we were at Stanford, we had, you know, 10,000 people using our service, uh, or about 10,000 searches per day, I should say. And now we serve over 50 million searches per day. And that scaling of infrastructure, um, that, that's pretty challenging. On a more personal level, I think uh, I'm now the president of Google, and we have uh, about 170 people now. And I think managing, managing people and being emotionally sensitive and uh, all the skills you learn in terms of communication and uh, keeping people motivated, I think you know, that's been a challenge, and I've enjoyed learning that. But that's, that's uh, an important and a hard thing to learn. What Brynn and Page lacked in experience, they made up for in vision. Jump ahead, and 20 years later, Google has over 100,000 employees spread across 50 countries. Or, more accurately, Alphabet does. That's the parent company created when they restructured Google a few years back. It's beyond the wildest American dream that Sergey Brin's parents, Soviet Jews, could have had when they left the Soviet Union with their young son. Back in 2000, Brin said growing up as an immigrant was not without its challenges, but... If anything, I think I benefit from it, though. Honestly, I was, as a child, I, I was, you know, I had an accent. I came to the U.S. at the age of six, and uh, um, so I was teased and stuff in elementary school, and I don't think I was, I don't regard myself as, you know, being really popular going through school, um, but I, that was never that important to me, and I always had friends. I think, if anything, I've, I don't know, I feel like I've gotten a gift by, by being in the States rather than growing up in Russia, and I know the hard times that my parents went through there, and I'm very thankful that I was brought to the States, and I think it just makes me appreciate my life uh, much more. Sergey Brin's mother and father were, perhaps not surprisingly, a mathematics professor at the University of Maryland and a research scientist at NASA. Larry Page's dad, likewise, was in the right field to launch a tech prodigy. Well, I think I was really lucky to have an environment when I was growing up. My dad was a professor, happened to be a professor of computer science. And, you know, we had computers sort of lying around the house from a really early age. Like, I think I was the first kid in my elementary school to turn in a word-processed document. So, um, and I just enjoyed using the stuff. So it was sort of lying around and got to play with it. And I had an older brother who was interested in it as well. So I think I had kind of a unique environment that most people didn't have. Because, you know, my dad was willing to spend, you know, all his available income on buying a computer or whatever. Really, it was like 1978 when I was six. And so 
I, I don't think there's many people my age who've had that experience or anyone in general. And from very early age also I realized I wanted to invent things. And so I became really interested in technology and also then soon after in business because I figured that inventing things wasn't any good. You really had to get them out into the world and have people use them, right, to have any effect. So probably from when I was 12, I knew I was going to start a company eventually. Computers and other electronics, in other words, were the toys of his childhood. He built them and he took them apart. But he liked other toys, too. Actually, in college, I built an inkjet printer out of Legos because I wanted to be able to print really big images. I figured, you know, you could print really big posters really cheaply using inkjet cartridges. So I reverse engineered the cartridge and I built all the electronics and mechanics to drive it. Larry Page met Sergey Brin when Page came for a visit to Stanford's graduate program in computer science. Brin was in his second year of the program and was the tour guide for Page's group. The two men didn't exactly hit it off. Page thought Brin was obnoxious, but it turned out they liked arguing and became best friends. Brin was fascinated by the data mining potential of the new World Wide Web. Page saw the web as a ginormous graph and decided for his dissertation to trace the trail of links on the web backwards. If you examined who linked to whom, you might come up with an interesting mathematical model, he thought, that ranked the importance of websites. Without going into too much computer geekery that I admit I don't understand, it turned out, coincidentally, to be the algorithm for a winning search engine. Can you even name another search engine today? Sergey Brin and Larry Page have come back to Academy of Achievement summits several times since 2000 as honorees and conquering heroes. Here's Page in 2006 trying to inspire a new crop of student delegates by talking about the fear of failure. I just wanted to relay my story to you very quickly which was that uh, when we were thinking about starting Google, we actually we were doing research at Stanford. We had no idea we'd build a search engine. Uh, we were just interested in the links on the web and sort of the computer science aspects of that. And we stumbled on a way of actually ranking web pages you know, better than were being done before. And then later we realized that would be useful for search. And we went through a period of a couple years trying to license that to other companies and to... Uh, really uh, get it out into the world, and the other companies weren't that interested. And we were really confused about this, and eventually realized that, well, we really needed to start a company to get this technology out there. And actually, years went by. You know, we were happy at Stanford, as some of you I've met here are very happy at Stanford also. And, you know, the weather is good. We had, uh, we did lots of sports and things, and we didn't really want to start the company. We wanted to get our PhDs and graduate, and as uh, and distinguished ourselves that way. But we finally realized that uh, we really should take that risk. And uh, everyone was very supportive. Uh, our professor said, you know, if you guys go off and start a company and it you know, doesn't succeed, you can come back and get your degrees. We don't care. And uh, uh, they actually still tell us that. Uh, um, and um, we haven't done that yet, but maybe someday. And uh, so we had actually almost no risk at all. Uh, we had no risk to our academic issues. We um, were obviously going to be able to still buy burritos and whatever we needed to eat. And, um, 
it, there was no risk to us at all. But we perceived a huge risk, and it took us a long time to start the company. And uh, in retrospect, I mean, it seems really ridiculous now uh, that we would have been so concerned about that. But many, many things don't happen in the world because people are scared, and usually not of any bad things happening to you, but just that you're going to fail. And I, I think that's just a, a great lesson to, to think about. Um, I think uh, the other thing I would just say is that we were really lucky to have the opportunity. You know, we weren't intending to build necessarily a big company, uh, but we had we recognized an opportunity and we went with it, and that, that's worked out pretty well. Understatement alert. Bryn and Paige are two of the wealthiest people in the world, both of them now philanthropists, and they've changed the way most of the world operates, technologically and culturally. One last thing before we move on to Bill Gates, the name. Just really curious, my name is Alejandra Casillas, I'm from Harvard Medical School. I just was wondering, how'd you come up with the name Google? Uh, So the name Google is a large number. Uh, it's one followed by a hundred zeros. Or as Sergey likes to remind me, though, it was spelled slightly differently. G-O-O-G-O-L. That was before we had spell checking and those kind of things. And <laughs> I've never been very good at spelling, so it is the way it is. <laughs> to me, the... Uh, The whole idea here is to build a tool that can uh, tap into people's uh, incredible abilities. And we're just at the the very beginning of that. When you think of how is man distinguished from any other animal, what is it that we do? We are the tool builder. That's Bill Gates, of course. Back in 1992, he made his first appearance at an Academy of Achievement summit. In fact, I was kind of surprised when I got the invitation to come to this event, uh, said that and we're going to get a uh, lot of nice, uh, clean-cut students and have a, a dropout like me get up and uh, explain uh, that I never did, did finish school. More on Bill Gates' educational path in a moment. But while he described Microsoft in 1992 in terms of its potential, it had, in fact, already transformed computers and transformed the world. 17 years earlier, Gates had been just a babe in the woods when he started the company with his high school buddy, Paul Allen. It was a little strange to start a company at, at that uh, young of an age. I mean, I, when I'd go visit customers, I, had, I told them, I can't run a car, you have to come pick me up. Um, they'd uh, try to have meetings in bars, and I'd say, well, I'll wait outside. Uh, Gates' life in tech started several years before that. He traced the story to its very beginnings when he returned to the Academy of Achievement in 2010. When I was very young, I hadn't been exposed to computers, so I was mostly just reading, uh, doing math, learning about science, and I wasn't sure what my career would be. I knew I loved uh, learning about things. I was an avid reader, uh, but it was when I was 12 years old that I, I first got to use a computer actually a very limited machine by uh, today's standards. Uh, But I was intrigued by figuring out what it could do and what it couldn't do. That first computer, we're talking about the late 1960s here, was one he saw at his new middle school, Lakeside in Seattle, about 15 miles from where Microsoft has its headquarters. Well, my parents had this notion that I had this high potential somehow and that I was not taking advantage of it, uh, that 
you know, the environment I'd been in, sort of being a goof off was more socially rewarding than being that serious. And it was public school, you know, so they weren't pushing people all that hard. You could read the textbook in the first week and, you know, sort of, there wasn't anything interesting going to happen the rest of the, the school year. And so they had me take an exam to go to a private school. And I thought, well, should I pass this exam or not? You know, you could fail it and they wouldn't, you wouldn't have to go. Uh, but that, that sort of violated my sense of integrity that, you know, hey, I'm good at taking tests. I don't want to uh, get confused about that. So I, I was admitted and they encouraged me to go. It was a boys' school, reasonably strict. Uh, during the time I was there, it actually transitioned, uh, merged with a girls' school and stopped having uniforms, stopped calling the teacher's master. Uh, so it, it became pretty normal. But it was, a, it was a change at first. And the idea of just being kind of a goof-off wasn't the sort of high-reward uh, position like it'd been in, in public school. So that, it, you know, my parents were right. It, it had the intended effect of, of creating a more challenging environment. And you know, some teachers who uh, were nice about saying that, you know, I should try harder and uh, exposing me to a lot of math and science. Um, and eventually, uh, that's where I, I got to, to use the computer. And here's the kind of odd story of how and why in the late 1960s, Lakeside School got its own computer. PTA members everywhere, take note. The Lakeside's Mother's Club uh, had a rummage sale every year to raise money for the school. And instead of just funding the budget, they always would fund something kind of new and interesting in addition. And without too much understanding, they decided having a computer terminal at the school would be a novel thing. It was a, a teletype, uh, uppercase only, you know, 10 characters a second. Uh, and you had to share a phone line to call in to a big computer, a time-sharing computer that was very expensive. It charged uh, when you were connected up, it would charge, and then when you actually had a program running, it would charge a lot more. And so they set up this teletype, and some of the math and science teachers, you know, played around with it. One of them accidentally spent a lot of money uh, with the infinite loop program. They spent like $200 by surprise. And so they were a bit intimidated, and a bunch of us kind of hung out there and tried out different things. Uh, the programming language was basic, uh, which was quite novel at the time. It had been invented by some Dartmouth professors. And so that was the first computer language I learned. And I wrote, I wrote increasingly complex programs. And so that eighth grade exposure was, was a pretty neat thing, even though what the machine we were working on was, was quite limited. Most colleges didn't have computers at the time, so it was a pretty extraordinary thing. No, the idea of students playing around with a computer was very unusual at the time. And in fact, that computer, um, you know, eventually the costs were high enough, they, they took it away, but then uh, some other computer companies had come around, including one in Seattle, 
that uh, a bunch of us went down and volunteered to help out and do some work for us. So we, from that point on, we always managed, although it was dicey at times, to find access to computers. And that was very unusual uh, in high school. But it took a lot of initiative on our part to get those experiences. But we wouldn't have done it if we hadn't had that that early eighth grade exposure. Our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, asked Bill Gates to please explain in a little more detail how timesharing worked back in the day, since it is a bizarro concept by today's standards. Well, the key point is that computers were immensely expensive uh, and cost millions of dollars. A machine that was far less powerful than than what you have in a, a cell phone today. And so that Either you'd have a very important application or you just shared the machine with other people and still you had to pay quite a bit of money. And so time sharing is where you're connected up and, and sharing the machine. It's a lot better than sending your programs in because you can see when you make a mistake uh, pretty quickly. Even so, because they charge us so much, we'd actually type the programs offline on a paper tape uh, so that we didn't have any delay for typing and then when we got onto the computer we'd feed in that tape uh, so that there was less less time online but it, it gave you a sense of okay what you got right and wrong and you could try and correct things uh, we also because at that time the dominant form of computing was using punch cards we actually did that quite a bit we were down at the University of Washington and used some of those punch card systems. As computers became less expensive, so-called mini-computers, then more people had access, mostly scientists and business people, but also we managed to find machines that weren't being used at night. The idea of a machine is something that an individual would use and that it would just sit there idle when they weren't using it. That only made sense about a decade later when the work that we and others had done had gotten the, the price down so dramatically that the idea of a computer sitting idle you know, doesn't feel like some huge waste of resources uh, like uh, it did when they were so uh, expensive and rare. Bill Gates said the time and cost pressure made learning to program an even more high stakes, exciting pursuit. He described himself and his friends as addicted. They read everything they could get their hands on to learn more and improve their programming skills. It's a fascinating kind of mathematical thing. How can you make it fast? How can you make it small? By the time he was 16, Bill Gates was really good. Uh, eventually, one of the programs we took on was the idea of the scheduling of of our school. When should the classes meet? Who should be in which section? So you have all these requests for people who want different classes and keeping them small and not having the teachers teach too many classes in a row. Very complex kind of software problem. And actually when the school first asked me to do it, uh, when I was 15, I said that I, I didn't know how. And they asked some adults to do it and that didn't work. Uh, and then about a year later, I'd figured out how to do it. And so my friends and I actually did the software that did all this high school scheduling. Um, it had some fantastic uh, benefits to us. And we got paid for doing it. It was exactly the kind of com 
complex problem that uh, developed my skills very well. And, you know, we got some degree of control over who was in our classes. And uh, so, you know, it, it combined the best of everything. Their success led to other jobs. A small Seattle company called C-Cubed, Computer Center Corporation, had a time-sharing computer, and they invited the tech-savvy boys from Lakeside to use it in the evenings, as long as the boys performed a particular task while they were there. So these C-Cube people have this computer, which is a time-sharing computer, and they're letting us come in at night. And they had this deal with the company who made the computer, Digital Equipment Corporation, that they had this acceptance period. If they could find problems with it, they could delay their rental payments. And so they thought of us as kind of monkeys that might find some problems and help them delay their rental payments. Well, that, that was a fair analysis because at first we were just completely goofing around. Like we'd have try to run hundreds of jobs at the same time or have all the jobs try and grab the same resources to see if we could get the system to fail. And we did in kind of this brute force approach. And so that would, they would report that as a problem and delay their rental payment. Well, as a few months went by, actually about four months by the end of it, we had gotten very uh, uh, sophisticated. In fact, we'd gotten the source code of the operating system out of the garbage can and were reading it. And the kind of problems we were finding were far more subtle. In fact, we'd not only find the problem, we'd look and we'd suggest how they might fix it. Well, anyway, digital equipment got so tired of this, they said, look, you've got to pay. You're going to be able to find problems, these, these kinds of problems forever, but we need to get paid. And so then there was a question whether they would let us stay there or not. And it was pretty tenuous. Um, and so Paul and I, you know, we understood the system well enough that we could look at all the passwords of the various uh, accounts. And so, you know, we could use literally any account. And um, then people, when they found out we'd done that, they got kind of mad about that. They weren't sure how mad they should be about it because we hadn't really caused any damage. But, you know, it wasn't a, a good thing. You know, computer hacking was literally just being invented uh, at the time. And so fortunately, we got off with a bit of a warning. But there actually was a period that because of that, they said we weren't supposed to use the computer. And it was over a summer. And Paul actually went up to the University of Washington and found ways to use the computer uh, and get connected up. Uh, and he, he took a while before he told me. And then eventually, he told me about that. And we got, we got back on. In other words, they hacked their way back on. But not long after, C-Cubed went bankrupt, and the Lakeside crew was again without computer access. When they finally found another arrangement, Bill Gates found himself left out of the group. Initially, when that teletype showed up, there were probably 20 kids who sort of showed an interest. And it was confusing enough that it got winnowed down to about uh, eight or nine fairly quickly who were quite serious about it. And then uh, there were about four of us who were hyper serious, you know, kind of doing it day and night. And uh, two of them were two years older than I was, and one uh, was my same age. Now, in a high school, 
people are two years ahead of you, you know, they don't socialize with the young kids all that much. Uh, so the idea that we had this group of four of us, you know, it's kind of unusual. We called it the Lakeside Programming Group. So this company uh, down in Portland, Oregon, said, hey, we're not just going to give you computer time. You have to do something. So we agreed to write this payroll program. And a payroll program is surprisingly complicated. There's all these taxes and reports and things uh, at the state level and federal level. Anyway, uh, they said, well, if you could write one of those, we'd at least give you free computer time. And so I negotiated that deal. And the two older members, uh, Paul Allen and Rick, said, well, you know, this is, there's not enough work to go around, so we're going to take charge of this. And I said, okay, you know, I'm not that interested because I had in mind how I wanted to do the payroll program. And so they, they messed around for about three months, didn't get much done, uh, and then said, well, you, you join back up. And I said, okay, but, you know, if so, I'm in charge uh, of this. And, you know, it's going to kind of set a precedent for future activities, but they said, no, no, that's fine. And so we worked, we actually finished this payroll program. It was a lot of work. Uh, the friend who was my age, uh, Kent Evans and I, ended up doing the lion's share of the work. Now, tragically, right as he and I finished that, he was killed in a, a mountain climbing accident. And um, so then there were, there were just three of us left who'd been extremely involved, including Paul Allen, uh, who was the one who was reading the magazines even more than I was. And he was the one who actually saw this computer on a chip, so-called microprocessor, uh, in a very small, obscure article. But he saw that it would be deeply important and brought that to me uh, in 1971. So we were still 15, I was 15, and he was 17 um, at the time. They may have known enough to see the future unfolding before their eyes, but they were just teenagers. So they kept plowing along, honing their valuable skills and getting more jobs. You know, we were lucky. There were always kind of things that not only gave us an opportunity, but exposed us uh, to that next level. You know, after the payroll program, then there was a, a computer project to use computers to control all the electricity grid in the dams of the Pacific Northwest. It's a government agency called Bonneville Power had uh, done a contract with a company called TRW to use computers to do all this control. And TRW had committed to do all this really high reliability, great software work. Well, they found it more difficult than they expected. And so they were looking for people who understood these kinds of computers, which Paul and I, Paul Allen and I, had done a lot of work on. This was the same computer that was at Computer Center Corporation and at this Portland company, Information Sciences. Anyway, so they, they, we were kind of famous, but nobody had met us because we'd filed these problem reports. And by the end of these problem reports, we, they were so sophisticated, it was like, who are these guys? You know, out in Seattle telling us how to fix all this stuff. And so when TRW is saying, hey, we're desperate, find us 
they're telling digital equipment who makes these things, find us the best programmers. And somebody says, well, there's Gates and Allen. And somebody says, well, nobody's really met them. But yeah, but they're really good. We, you know, we ought to be able to track them down. So they <laughs> find us, <laughs> this one guy, and we go for an interview and they, you know, these two kids show up and what was I when I was interviewed? I was 16 uh, when they interviewed me. So they're like, well, <laughs> we can't hire you. But you know, then they talked to us about software and we clearly know a lot. And when you're young and you know a lot, people don't have any kind of intermediate thing. You're either you know, what you're supposed to be, which is a kid who doesn't know that much, or they think, whoa, what, you know, this guy's the limit. Well, we were pretty good programmers. But anyway, so we got jobs at this TRW, and that exposed me to some programmers who were way better than I was, who critiqued my work. I could look at their work. You know, this one guy was really a phenomenal programmer. He would just take my stuff and rip it apart, you know, in this super constructive way. Anyway, it was, it was a brilliant thing. And, and so part of my senior year uh, and the summer before and after the senior year, Paul and I were down in uh, Vancouver, Washington, working on this project. So it kind of took our understanding to a whole new level and it exposed us to a bunch of people there. And you know, Paul the whole time, ever since he'd seen that Microprose article was saying, you know, there's an opportunity here, this is going to be big. You know, we ought to think what we're going to do about this. So we kept, kept talking about that. By that point, this is the early 1970s, a generation of what were called mini-computers had come on the market. They didn't take up a whole room like the old computers did, but they were nothing we'd consider mini today. Mini-computers were like $10,000 to $200,000. Paul and I had uh, borrowed some of those and messed around with those. And Paul said, no, no, you're going to have something better than that mini computer that costs uh, like a thousand dollars. So we kept watching those chips get better and we did the scheduling program. Then my senior year we're down at, at TRW, they're getting better. And in fact in 1973 um, the 8080 chip comes out and Paul you know, shows that to me and I say okay this is better than most of these mini computers. And so we think, wow, somebody's going to take that chip and do something well. Well, in the meantime, I start at Harvard University back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, Paul's saying, hey, this, he's at Washington State, another place. So I help him get a job out uh, there in the Boston area. And we're just brainstorming, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the microprocessor. And I'm, you know, playing poker. Uh, signing up for lots and lots of classes, undergraduate classes, graduate classes. Uh, but then, um, finally, somebody takes the 8080 chip and creates a kit computer, and that's on the cover of the January 1975 uh, Popular Electronics that comes out in December 1974. And so we get that, and that's both exciting because finally this thing that we've expected has happened, but the question is, is it happening without us? And so this company, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we call them up and say, hey, we can do software for this machine. And they say, oh yeah, sure. Um, so we very quickly uh, work on a basic for this computer. 
which I'm well equipped to do, and Paul has is, is, had some brilliant ideas about how we'd simulate this machine because we didn't have one, and that was, was amazing. Um, so we write this thing, and we call them up, and we say, hey, when you connect a teletype up, how do you get the, what's the software programming to get the characters in and get them to print them? How do you do that, this so-called input-output? And they thought, well, that's interesting. You guys may not be flaky uh, because you're actually, you're the first one who asked that question, which is if you're going to really write the software, you eventually have to ask that question. So they give us the answer, and Paul flies out with this uh, paper tape of the software. Gates was still an undergrad at Harvard, and Paul Allen was working at Honeywell. We spend, what was it, six weeks and really write this thing, which, you know, my whole career had sort of been building up to this thing. It's a, one of the most, probably the most fun piece of software I ever wrote. I mean, it's unbelievable because it has to be very small. There's only 4K bytes of memory, and we don't have the real machine, so you have to be very careful to get everything right. Anyway, so Paul takes it out, and these guys mostly sell kit computers. They'd only assembled a few of them. And so they got it connected up. And, the, and Paul puts it in, and it runs the first time. And everybody was amazed because we had to do everything totally right, how we read this in, instruction set manual. And they, they were selling these kit computers, but they'd never really seen it do anything real. And so, you know, Paul would type in, you know, print 2 plus 2, print... And he, he ran programs, and it worked. Just to reiterate, they wrote a flawless program for a machine they'd never actually seen. Bill Gates said that Paul Allen is the one who came up with the breakthrough idea for how to simulate the thing so they could edit and debug their program. But if we'd made any mistake in uh, how we read this thing, you know, that paper tape wasn't going to work at all. Anyway, so that was very exciting, and we signed a deal with them. Uh, that was called MITS, and their computer was called the Altair. And then I left Harvard University, and we started Microsoft. And so Microsoft was initially based uh, down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is um, uh, 1973 when we when we get going. And what if the program hadn't actually worked on the Altair computer that fateful day? Would it have changed Microsoft's history? Would it have changed our history? It turns out, even though we were in this big rush, there weren't many other people doing serious work at the time. It was another couple of years before other software companies showed up. And even then, they weren't that serious about hiring people. They didn't have people who really understood about writing software and how you created a, a company around writing software. They didn't figure out the global nature of the market. So we, we would have been fine, but it, it was certainly exciting that there was, there was no mistake at all. Bill Gates said when they were kids, they'd play around inventing names for their future company. That's how confident they were. One of those names was Allen and Gates. But when the time actually arrived, they thought their own names made the enterprise sound more like a law firm, something that would remain small. And they had very big plans for creating and selling microcomputer software. And so Microsoft was a, a very natural choice. 
One of the biggest challenges Bill Gates and Paul Allen faced pretty quickly after launching was, well, the business end of the business. Just as Larry Page and Sergey Brin described, hiring, recruiting, sales, infrastructure, scaling up, 144,000 people now work for Microsoft. But back when Bill Gates first made the decision to leave Harvard to start a business, Gail Eichenthal wanted to know, what did his parents have to say? Well, my parents had been fantastic throughout my whole student career. I mean, getting me to go to Lakeside, uh, that my senior year at Lakeside where I wanted to take time off and do this job at TRW, they'd been very supportive of that, letting me live down in Vancouver, Washington. I, I challenged them a little bit when some of the, the my coworkers at TRW said I should skip undergraduate and just go to graduate school, and they were not enthused about that. It looked like I would have an opportunity to do that, but I didn't. I, I just went to Harvard, and that was another case where they were right, that you know socially being with other undergraduates was good. I got to take graduate courses up at MIT, and I did that to a limited degree. So I, I kind of had the best of both worlds. Anyway, when it came time to uh, go on leave from Harvard, the policies of the school about if you're gone, letting you come back are incredibly generous. And so if the enterprise had failed, then you know I would have been back. And so my parents were a little surprised and kind of wondering what it meant, uh, but they were pretty supportive. And you know, then as the company became successful, they, you know, I hope they felt better about it. The, you know, the only really bad case was if, if I stayed and the company was kind of mediocrely successful. If it failed, it would be okay. If it was a big success, it would be okay. And they, you know, they could see I was very energized. And I thought, you know, we needed to get in at the very beginning and not waste a year or two, which is what I had left of my uh, undergraduate course requirements. It's a path that was followed by a number of people during the growth of the tech industry. And while it's many a computer major's fantasy scenario, Bill Gates advises against others following in his footsteps. College was amazing, he says, and if it weren't for the urgency of the moment, he would have stayed. Now, about the great PC-Mac divide, the truth is that Apple's computers used to run on Microsoft software. All personal computers did. All of them. And I mean personal computers here in the generic sense. It was only later that the term PC came to designate IBM-compatible computers. In other words, non-Macs. But in those early, heady Microsoft days, the Apple II ran on Microsoft Basic. The Radio Shack TRS-80 ran on Microsoft Basic. Microsoft's personal computing software was the only game in town. But still, they didn't charge very much for their contracts because they knew there'd always be plenty of work ahead, making new versions and add-ons. The whole structure of the way we licensed things was that we knew we could write software more efficiently than if they hired the engineers themselves. So we always was a, were able to say, hey, you would have spent a half million developing that yourself, you know, we'll license it to you for uh, inexpensive price. We probably could have high, had prior, higher prices, but 
you know, we were doing fine. You know, in fact, that 6502 basic uh, that uh, Mark Chamberlain and I wrote, we licensed to about 12 different people. And so our profitability was huge, even though it was a great deal for Apple. Uh, per machine, they paid almost nothing. You know, we believed that we could hire the best engineers. There was an unbelievable amount of software to be written, and we could do it well, and we could do it on a, a global basis. And uh, the original customer base was the hardware manufacturers. And we sold to literally hundreds and hundreds, you know, uh, over 100 companies in Japan, over 100 companies doing word processors and industrial control type things. We knew in the long run we wanted to sell software directly to users, but we actually didn't get around that until 1980 when we had uh, our first sort of games and uh, uh, productivity software that, that people would go to a computer store and actually buy the, the software package. That's when their mission statement became explicit a computer on every desk and in every home. Well, Paul Allen and I had used that phrase even before we wrote the basic for Microsoft. We actually talked about it in an article in, I think, 1977 was the first time it appears in print where we say a computer on, a, on every desk and in every home and actually the we said running Microsoft software. If we were just talking about the vision, we'd leave the, those last three words out. Uh, if we were talking in an internal company discussion, we'd put those words in. It was an easy and tempting calculation. Well, you could sit, even in the early days, if you set a computer on every desk in every home, and you'd say, okay, how many homes are there in the world? How many desks are there in the world? You know, can I make 20 bucks for every home, 20 bucks for every desk? You know, you could get these big numbers. But part of the beauty of the whole thing was we were very focused on the here and now. Should we hire one more person? If our customers didn't pay us, would we have enough cash to meet the payroll? You know, we really were very practical about that next thing and so involved in the deep engineering that we didn't get ahead of ourselves. They, the everyday activity of just doing great software drew us in. And some decisions we made, like the quality of the people, the way we were very global, the vision of uh, how we thought about software, that was very long term. But you know, other than those things, you know, we just came into work every day and uh, wrote more code and you know, hired, hired more people. And it wasn't really until the IBM PC succeeded and perhaps even until Windows succeeded, that there was a broad awareness that Microsoft was very unique as a software company, that these other companies had been one product companies, hadn't hired people, couldn't do a broad set of things, didn't renew their excellence, didn't do research. Um, so you know, we thought we were doing something very unique, but it was easily uh, not until 1995 or even 1997 that that there was this wide recognition that we, we were the company that had, had revolutionized software. Remember what Bill Gates said in the opening of this episode? People, smart people, computer people, thought he and his high school buddy Paul Allen 
were a little out to lunch when they envisioned a world with a computer in every home. What a silly idea that people would want their own computers. Whatever would they possibly do with them? Microsoft was at the center of the personal computer revolution, in particularly, in particular the creation of a software market where you went out to lots of companies and encouraged them to write software for different applications, mundane applications, wild applications. That idea that you would encourage people to be creative and build software, and there'd be a whole industry around that. Uh, Microsoft believed in that and no one else did. In retrospect, it all seems so obvious, but that was the genius of Bill Gates and of Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who we heard from earlier in this episode. They gazed into the future and then made it happen. We hope you'll take a listen to our episodes on Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos to learn about their groundbreaking paths to success. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. Thank you.